One evening in Provincetown, I get to take a pile of documents to my hotel room, as Dan Towler, who used to work as Hazel's personal secretary, agrees to share his personal archives with me. Going over the documents in the dim light of the room, I revisit a rare photo of Hazel. She smiles. She's wearing a red summer dress and a headscarf made of the same red fabric. The photo is taken somewhere outside. I see people and green trees in the background. It could be a picnic or a gathering of some kind. Her short hair is all gray. I can see a little bit of it under the scarf. And she has the widest smile on her face. It's as if someone walked behind her, tapped her on the shoulder, asked her to turn around and snapped the picture. To me, it seems the photo captures a moment of pure joy. Hazel's teeth are all white. You can see them. And she looks so healthy and happy. The photo is from 1969, the year of Woodstock, Richard Nixon becoming president, and Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. This is one of the few color pictures I've ever seen of Hazel. She looks less dramatic, less mysterious, and more in tune with the world. If you happen to stumble on this podcast only now, by chance, I warmly recommend you start from the very beginning. You'll learn how I, a regular book nerd from Helsinki, Finland, almost got lost in archives of all sorts and finally ended up here, sitting by a kitchen table in sunny Provincetown, Massachusetts, reminiscing about a mysterious woman called Hazel Hawthorne. In the previous episode, you got to meet a few people who actually knew Hazel, In this episode, you'll hear how Hazel's life in Provincetown started to form from the 1950s onwards. At the end of the episode, you'll learn about a significant summer guest who spent time in one of Hazel's dune shacks working on a book I'm sure you'll recognize. But now, enough with the introductions. I meet Dan Towler for the second time, and Mary DeAngelis joins our kitchen table gathering. She too used to work for Hazel. To maintain two shacks in the dunes is a lot of work, it seems. Referring to her management of the shacks, I mean, she was unique just in in the sense alone that she um, acquired two, not one, but two of those shacks. Yeah. Um, and specifically just for uh, sort of a, a refuge from town and for, I guess, creativity Well, I guess that that was probably true of a number of other people, but yeah, you know, two shacks, and she was tremendously generous with those shacks. That's uh, right, allowing others to use them, especially after she couldn't use them fully That's herself. Right. Yeah, she had to put enormous energy into taking care of the shacks. A lot of my job was organizing stuff for the shacks and making sure things were, you know, ready for them in the spring and. Bed sheets, towels, supplies. I mean, enormous energy goes into maintaining the shacks and making mm. sure that they're livable. And you have to have a special vehicle, mm. you know, to get out there. Have you been out there? I have. Oh, good. I, I good, went good, there good. the first night I arrived. Good, good, so, good. Oh, yeah. okay. So yeah, you need. It's a. It's not a casual thing. You need the right vehicle, and you need to know how to drive in it. And uh, yeah, just tons of details that mm. had to be done and I helped her do that. 
We continue to talk about Provincetown and how it seems to draw people in and closer together. Well, I mean, All Provincetown, as you've understood now, tends to draw celebrities of all stripe sooner or later, right. particularly writers and artists. You know, the combination of that and Hazel's uh, attractiveness and, you know, connections in the literary world, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's hard not to be drawn to that story, you know. After Hazel made the decision to separate from Morris and move to Provincetown year-round, she learned to live alone, to cherish the solitude. She writes, To be alone may be unnatural, but all my life I have greeted it with relief and joy whenever it was possible. All is in equilibrium when I am alone. My weak mind strengthens when uninterrupted. Even though I tremble with the intensity of it, I am serene and joyous. I can so relate to what Hazel says. Learning to be alone, to feel comfortable with one's own thoughts, is a prerequisite for producing any kind of art. And in my opinion, to being a balanced human being. We can't rely on other people to answer to all our needs. And yet, at the same time, <laughs> we need to constantly reach out towards one another in order to survive. It's a bit of a mystery to me. This research trip, as I travel alone, is a good concrete reminder of this conundrum. I need to do this by myself, but I can't succeed without the help of others. In town, Hazel lives in a garage house on Tasha Hill. It's on the eastern side of town. Dan and Mary both know the house well. Garage up there was not a place you want. It was designed, I think, for a summer, you know, if anything, summer uh, living. <laughs> and it cost a tremendous amount to heat and was never warm in the winter. In the 1950s, Hazel comes and goes between the garage house and the dunes. She's a grandmother by now. In town, she earns a modest living from babysitting. Sometimes she travels out of town to babysit to her writer friends, like John Cheever. One year, she even flies off to Washington State to help her son with his children. One winter, she fills in for the regular columnist in the local paper called New Beacon and writes down her observations of nature, town, and its people. Discussions of protecting the dunes have started and Hazel uses the forum she has to talk about it. She regularly retreats to the dunes. Spending time in euphoria offers tranquility to her life, and she starts to call the dunes her place. In July 1955, she writes, With joy I have returned from town to the place. A curious day. The sky a drab glare, Humidity relieved by a cooling, strong wind from the southwest. The prevailing wind of summer, an irritating wind. Hazel would always observe the nature in detail, and her excellent descriptive writing, which Edmund Wilson complimented already back in the late 20s, came to life with the notes she wrote about the dunes. She continues, A quiet day, between seasons, misty. As I fled the town, no one was on the streets, and the sound of a lapping high tide came from the shore. 
The marram grass out here is heavy, overweighted with its seed stalks. Once more, the docile succession of lovely days. Morning, noon is a long stillness and creature comfort. Afternoon with all its nuances or change. Night, oh my place. Now, you may remember that Hazel has been called the original beat, meaning that she embodied a beat writer before the beat generation, before the whole term was even invented. The term came into existence in the late 1940s as the young intellectuals and students started to define what they were as a generation. The word beat was used to describe people who were beaten down. For Hazel, this was certainly true in some regard. Her applications for financial support for her writing were rejected over the years. She was known to be poor, even while married, and her situation as a young mother of five induced pity in the eyes of notable men who wrote support letters to her grant applications. In the eyes of others, life in the dunes was perhaps not seen as an independent choice, but an outcome of not having financial success. So there are a lot of beatific elements in Hazel's life, in her trials and errors of becoming a writer. But when you think of beat writers, the name Jack Kerouac comes up, typically sooner rather than later. Kerouac is perhaps most known for his novel On the Road. What is less known is that he, too, spent time on Hazel's dune shack Thalassa, typing away on a typewriter on the deck of the shack. The evidence I've found implies he worked on poems and articles and his most famous book, On the Road, in one of Hazel's shacks. Can you imagine? This woman, this writer, who not many people have heard of, played a small part in the creation of Kerouac's book, in addition to her own career, of course. And it seems he was, at the time, romantically involved with one of Hazel's daughters, Nancy. Here's Dan Towler. He was a guest of Nancy's, apparently. Would you recognize the shack? Is that from Euphoria? I thought according to Nancy. <laughs> there yeah. it is. 1950 is what she said. Um, I understand that they had a brief... Uh, relationship of some kind. It could be. Yeah, this I, I understand. Speaking of charismatic, right. good-looking men, uh, yeah. Now the romance did not last for long, as Nancy decided to move on, and the myth of Kerouac riding on the road in a creative frenzy of three weeks started to gain popularity, not least because the writer himself cultivated the myth. And why would he not? It does make for a great story. I've been in touch with some of Hazel's grandchildren by email, learned a great deal, and seen so many photographs from family albums, including the one where Hazel smiles. Now, the moment has come for me to meet one of Hazel's grandchildren. You see, right before I traveled, I sent a message to someone I thought might be the person I was looking for, and it turned out well. This person has kindly agreed to meet with me. I'm a little nervous and a thousand questions zigzag in my head. But I soon realize I can take it easy and just be myself. Susan Pomerantz, 
or Sue for short, is the daughter of Sally, Hazel's youngest. You remember, Sally was born while Hazel was in Germany in 1928. Sally was the twin who survived. From Sue, I learn a surprising fact on Hazel. And you know what? This also involves a photograph. Many of those who knew Hazel when she was a little older seem to remember an article in the Smithsonian Magazine in 1975. The reason they remember it is the photograph of Hazel in the article. In this full-page photo, she's standing in the dunes, bare feet, wearing a long red skirt and a white shirt. All you see is sand, blue skies and smiling Hazel, who leans to a stick with her right hand and holds a blanket over her left arm. Here's what Sue tells me about the photo. She was very particular about photographs because she was a beautiful woman and she didn't pretend not to care about her appearance. She did. There's a photograph she did not like and there's a photograph she really did like. So the one in the Smithsonian she does not like. The one with they got with her the, with all the skirt. Up, well, yeah, they, they got her all. They, that was sort of a group effort with the, the Smithsonian photographer, but she was not pleased with the result. Oh, really? Yeah. And I think it's fine, but she and I, she would roll in her grave if that ever got republished. (laughs) I mean, this is just too funny. I think I've seen three color pictures of Hazel altogether. The rest are black and white. And one of these, the one many people seem to remember and even adore from the article in the Smithsonian Magazine in 1975, turns out to be the one Hazel hated the most. Because it's too grandiose. Ha! She really was part of the B generation in her heart. A true bohemian. You see, the sweet clash of it all is that Hazel got fan mail based on the Smithsonian article and the photograph. Women from all over the country wrote to her, expressing their adoration for her independence and unique way of life in the dunes. And there she was thinking she looks too grandiose and not genuine at all. Oh, the irony. (laughs) The irony of it all is just crazy. Sue and I have a long chat, and the anecdote on Hazel and photographs is just one of the many I learn. Like so often in life, when something meaningful happens, we may not realize it at the time. My meeting with Sue is exactly like that. I don't understand the meaning of it quite yet, as we talk for two hours while sipping our iced coffees. But Sue will become a very significant person in this project. You will hear all about it later on. The other person I get in touch with before I leave is artist Bert Yarborough. At the turn of the 70s and 80s, he spent three summers in euphoria with Cynthia Huntington. At this point in her life, Hazel could no longer stay in the shack herself and decided to rent it out for a longer period of time. You know, Hazel had gotten ill and she, for, for some just fortuitous reason, we happened to be visiting. We went over just to say hello or something or, or maybe to find out what was going to be happening in the summer. And she said, I, I can't open the shacks and would you like to be, you know, live out there for the summer? And we said, oh, sure. And it ended up for three summers in a row. And it was simply, I mean, Hazel, Hazel loved men. Mm. You know, she just loved men. So I think it was just the luck of the draw. 
that I happened to be there when she was looking for somebody because there were so many other people um, that she knew. And, and, uh, but she liked me and I liked going over there and talking to her. She, was, she just had this sparkle in her eyes. She was constantly, she was an extraordinary woman. Just, you know, amazing. So, and she would just tell all these stories about Promise Town and, and how she got here and all that kind of stuff. It was just fascinating. She was a real part of old Province Town and the arts community. But what happened to Hazel? Why could she not spend time in the dunes anymore? She discovered this, this brain illness, this disintegration, just by the motion, standing in the water, the, the motion of the water would just knock her over, just watching it, not being hit by it, just the sensation, mm. this movement of the water. And, you know, and it was just like, and so the fact that she couldn't go out to the dunes, or she only went out, she came out in a truck, and... But she couldn't go, she didn't go near the water anymore or anything mm. like that. But she would come out to the dunes. And, um, you know, I think she came out a couple of times. She didn't come out. She might have come out once while we lived out there the first or second summer. Um, but she didn't, you know, she didn't come out that much, uh, you know, once she was infirm because it was just so hard for her to walk and everything, especially on sand. Oh, how I wish I could have met Hazel. To learn that she started to suffer from these strange symptoms that affected her balance and gave her nausea makes my stomach turn upside down. Maybe the symptoms played a part in her choosing to live simply and modestly in Provincetown. As for the decision to not continue her career of writing, Hazel came to a conclusion of some sort, at least, in the 1950s. She writes... I have no real lust to write fiction, and none for poetry. What I do have is a deep interest in design and the resolution of complexities into simple and true relationships. It's a muddle somewhere in between a writer's skills and the aspirations of a plastic artist. In such a muddle, I have not yet found a form. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not being able to find form among the clutter? That's how I feel most of the time anyway. But for now, my time in Provincetown has come to an end. It is time for me to hop on the bus and head to New York City to continue my search for Hazel. I'm going to visit one of the reading rooms in NYPL, the New York Public Library. In the next episode... I'll dive into the archives of this magnificent library. Thank you for listening. If you're curious for updates on the project, follow my journey in Instagram at Finding Hazel Hawthorne. And while you're at it, why don't you make a quick visit to FindingHazelHawthorne.com. This podcast is produced by Inkaleisma and Essi Isomäki, hosted by Inkaleisma. Introducing Daniel Towler, Mary DeAngelis, Bert Yarbrough and Susan Pomerantz. Hazel Hawthorne's notes cited with permission of the Hazel Hawthorne estate. Theme song by Studio Le Bus. <laughs>